thank you uh, for this wonderful picture. Um, and, and I so ask you that by your spirit, you would do the very thing here among us that you did with those disciples at that table. As we seek to open up your word, would you by your spirit cause our hearts to soar, our hearts to burn within us? Oh God, make us thankful for your word. Make us thankful for the word of God incarnate. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We say that uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. And sometimes a cartoon can say way better with way more force and with way more clarity than even thousands of words. Barb and I were living in Washington, D.C. between October 1978 and February 1981, about two and a half years. And, and at some point in that period of time, um, in the pages of the Washington Post, embedded on the op-ed page of the Washington Post, was a cartoon, a cartoon of Ziggy. Remember the little rotund Ziggy with the bulbous nose? I have no idea what the editorial was about, but I can't forget the cartoon. Because what I remember of this cartoon is little Ziggy standing between two pedestals. And on top of each pedestal was a bust of a philosopher. Two philosophers with little Ziggy looking up. And the caption beneath the cartoon read simply, Which one of you will set me free? Which one of you? Which one of you lovers of wisdom will set me free? Little Ziggy capturing the deep, deep longing I'm convinced, buried in every human heart, which one of you will set me free? Humble, funny looking, just like us. Gazing up at these eminent minds, which one of you will set me free? I think Tom Wilson captured what is the most critical and important question of our age. Where is truth, and how do you know you've found it when you've gotten there? Which one of you will set me free? Where do I go to find truth? And how will I know? How will I know when I get there? We're looking at at some core convictions, some core beliefs over these few weeks at the beginning of this new year. We've looked at a couple of them. The first of them is the grace of God or the God of grace. You can't separate God's grace from God, and you can't separate God from the idea of grace. What is grace? It's simply this. Everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. Life is a gift. Freely, lavishly given by an infinite and eternally joy-filled God. 
whose gift in creation is the overflow of his own joy. God's joy explodes forth in the creation. God's creation pulsates with life and redemption, salvation, forgiveness. This multifaceted thing is a gift. It's a gift. All of it is a gift given as the self-denying act of love from the God of creation. That's what salvation is. It's a gift. Start to finish. I said this last week or two weeks ago, the thing that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion, every other philosophy, is just this. Start to finish, it's a gift. Everybody else is saying, pedal faster, try harder. Go back to school, get another degree. Do right things, avoid wrong things. Do enough, pedal faster, swim harder, and maybe you make the cut. Christianity says, no, it's all a gift, freely, lavishly given. And the consummation of it all, eternal life, joy unspeakable, full of glory, is a gift patiently anticipated by the giver as the giver of the gift patiently waits for the day of consummation. Father, I desire that those whom you have given me should be with me where I am, that they might know my joy. Jesus is waiting patiently as the great giver of the gift for the consummation of the gift. And because we value the grace of God and because we value the God of grace, we value worship. I mean, what could be more natural, what could be more truly human than to celebrate the God of grace, than to celebrate the grace of God by exalting Him, the worth of God? That's what we do. That's what we do week by week. That's what we seek to do, is value God as we worship. But then here's this third thing. And this thing As precious as those first two are, this is equally precious. And I do believe it is the defining issue for our culture, for our day, for our time, and for the church. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path just wonder if we really understand what a critical thing it is for us to say that we value the Word of God. That we value the Word of God. Let's say three things about it, and we're going we're gonna to skate across a number of passages in the Scriptures. But let's say three things about this matter of the Word of God. There is first the necessity of the Word, And that's probably the point I'll spend the most time on this morning, the necessity of the word. And then there is, secondly, the incarnation of the word. And then thirdly, and this will cause your heads to turn, there is the insufficiency of the word. So hold your breath and hang on for that one. The necessity of the word, the incarnation of the word, and the insufficiency of the word. First, the necessity of the word. 
I'm reading a little book by Peter Kreeft, who is a wonderful author. He's my new favorite author, and this is my new favorite book. And it's a little exposition of the book of Ecclesiastes. And Kreeft, who is himself a philosopher, calls the book of Ecclesiastes the first great book of philosophy. The first great book of philosophy. Not because of its form, not because it follows the described or prescribed regimens for doing philosophy, but because of the question that it raises. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And if you read through Ecclesiastes, you'll see this contrast. You'll see a contrast between life lived under the sun and life lived under God. Life viewed entirely from a horizontal perspective and life viewed from a vertical perspective. Disconnected from God, connected to God. Here are just some some samplings. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Everything is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Do you know the novel by Ernest Hemingway, A Sun, The Sun Also Rises? Sounds delightful, doesn't it? Sounds promising, doesn't it? The sun also rises. Barb and I sat on the beach last night. Watch the moon come out of the water. Watch the full moon begin to light up the beach behind us. And this morning, the sun also rose. But Ernest Hemingway stole that line from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And if you know that novel, and if you know the story of Hemingway's life, you will know that what he expresses both in his novel and what was expressed in his life is utter futility. The man slept with a shotgun to bring the futility to an end. Life viewed entirely from a horizontal perspective, disconnected from the existence of God. And then here's just another sampling, and you can read Ecclesiastes. Take a half an hour this afternoon. Take a half an hour this week and read it, and you'll see this contrast. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 22 and following. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. But then verse 24 
There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For from apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? There's the contrast, friends. Life viewed entirely from a horizontal perspective becomes one maddening cul-de-sac. One maddening carnival of meaninglessness. But when God is entered into the equation, things that otherwise are maddeningly meaningless begin, begin to take on meaning and significance. It's that stark I heard R.C. Sproul say 30 years ago, R.C. Sproul is one of a handful of folks who have had an enormous influence in my life. And 30 years ago, I heard R.C. say, there are not alternatives with respect to worldviews. I'm sorry, there are not options with respect to worldviews. There are alternatives. And there are alternatives You are choosing between two. And the alternatives are Christianity and nihilism, the nothing. I know nothing, next to nothing, about W.H. Auden, except that he was English, he was a poet, and he lived in New York City in the 1930s. And in the 1920s, he left the Christianity of his youth only to find himself in the 40s returning to it. You wonder why. Why wouldn't? Some of you may know more about W.H. Auden. I know a couple of other things. But I know those four things. A poet, English, living in New York City in the 30s, who in the 20s left the Christianity of his youth only to return to it in the 1940s. Why? Why would a celebrated, famous man of letters return to something that was becoming increasingly castigated by the very people with whom he associated? Let me read from W.H. Auden himself what he said. This is what brought me back to the church. The novelty and shock of the Nazis, Auden wrote, and the blitheness with which Hitler's acolytes dismissed Christianity on the grounds, quote, that to love one's neighbor as oneself was a command fit only for effeminate weaklings. Auden wrote, If, as I am convinced, the Nazis are wrong and we are right, what is it that validates our values and invalidates theirs? What is it that invalidates 
their values and validates ours. The answer to this question he wrote later was part of what brought me back to the church. When confronting the phenomenon of modern totalitarianism, he argued, quote, it was impossible any longer to believe that the values of liberal humanism were self-evident. Humanism needed to be grounded in something higher than a purely material account of the universe and in something more compelling than the hope, the mere hope, of a secular utopia. Only religious premises could support basic liberal concepts like equality and human rights. Only God could ask human beings, as the poet put it, to love their crooked neighbor with all their crooked heart. Auden began to see it. You understand what Auden was referencing and seeing himself? If you remove God from the equation, you are left to your own devices. You are Ziggy standing between these two pedestals, looking up at mere mortals who are two things, right? Two things, you who have been here for a while. They are fundamentally flawed and they are limited. And you are left, little Ziggy, looking up at two mere mortals, pleading and begging and asking, which of you will set me free? And if you are left to your own devices, if we are left to our own devices, here is where we will end up. And here, my friends, Tragically, sadly, increasingly, I say this not to condemn, I say this to reinforce for us the incredible significance of this value of holding and cherishing the word of God. If God is excluded from the equation, if God does not speak into our world, we are left where Richard Dawkins is left. Nature is not cruel. Nature is cruel, pitilessly indifferent. This is one of the hardest lessons for humans to learn. We cannot admit that things might be neither good nor evil, neither cruel nor kind, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. You probably know Dostoevsky's famous comment. If there is no God, anything is permitted. The French philosopher Sartre, I recall saying, and I can't find out where, but I'm going to track it down. No finite point has any ultimate significance or meaning apart from an infinite reference point. And Sartre himself believed at the end of the day that life ultimately was meaningless. If you remove God from the equation, you are at Ecclesiastes chapter 1 in a maddening meaningless cul-de-sac.
But you see where we are as the church of Jesus Christ. We are in possession of the speech of God. The words of God who is neither flawed nor finite. And who is able to speak. This is a beautiful thing. Happened last Sunday evening at youth group. I think it was last Sunday evening. After we were finished in here, I walked into the classroom or by the classroom, and I saw on that whiteboard some words, one of which was perspicuity. Perspicuity. What is something which is perspicacious? It is clear. It is clear. Perspective comes from the same root as perspicuity. When a word is spoken that is clear, it gives you perspective. And what we believe in this church and what the church, the true church, historically has believed and cherished because it is an existential necessity as much as a theological and philosophical truth. We believe that God has spoken and he's spoken clearly into our world, a world filled with confusion and chaos and darkness. And when he speaks, he speaks with clarity. Let me just read for you a couple of passages, passages which sort of establish and then perpetuate a trajectory that you find throughout the Bible. First one is Exodus chapter 4, verses 10 through 17. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. So what? It isn't on you, you middling coward. And it isn't on you in this respect. It's not on you to come up with what to say. And it's not on you to have to try to figure out a clever way to say it. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Ezekiel chapter 2. Beginning at verse 8. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it out before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. And so I opened my mouth. And he gave me the scroll to eat. And I ate it. And it was in my mouth. 
as sweet as honey. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are true, rejoicing the heart, sweeter than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb, more precious than gold, yea, than much fine gold is the law of the Lord. Why? Because it is a clear and true word beginning with Moses, beginning from before Moses, continuing after Moses, through Ezekiel, to Malachi, and down to the generation of the apostles who received it from God as the Old Testament prophets did. The word of God from God spoken into our world. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is expired. Expired. Not inspired, which many translations render the word, but expired, breathed out, breathed out from whom, by whom, from God, by God, employing human agency to be sure the personalities, temperaments, cultures of the authors of Scripture are clear and evident, but the author behind the authoring of every one of those 66 books is God himself who loves his people, who loves his world, and cannot suffer that his people should live in darkness. Thy word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. And every word of it given by a God who speaks the truth, is true. And if there is a lack of clarity about any of it, it's not on God's side. It's on our side. The testimony to the fact that we are both finite and flawed is that we struggle many, many times to understand what is clear. It's not on God. we realize, do we understand what a precious, precious thing this is? That we no longer have to cast about looking for a voice we can trust? And folks, what is the great, great proof that this voice is a voice that can be trusted? It's the incarnation, isn't it? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Look, you can know that somebody can be trusted when that somebody makes a sacrifice from which you benefit. And when that sacrifice is repeated again and again and again, and when there are no conditions attached to it, when there are no asterisks, no footnotes, no yes buts, but simply the unrelenting, merciful, kind giving of himself consummately in Jesus Christ, 
for a life of obedience and a death as a substitute upon the cross. Don't we know in our hearts this is a voice that can be trusted? And when I'm inclined to wonder whether or not this really happened, whether or not this is a voice that can be trusted, I have to be taken back to what is the central fact in all of human history about which there remained a consensus, about which and to which every one of the apostles remained consistent and loyal, and that is the resurrection. Jesus is no longer dead, but he is alive, never to die again. And having been raised to life, he is now ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. The disciples went to their graves, went to their executions, went to persecution, went to imprisonment, and their story could not be broken. They kept the conspiracy together. Lance Armstrong couldn't do that. Money, fame, adulation, power. Lance Armstrong couldn't keep his apostles from ratting him out. But every one of the twelve and many, many others went to their deaths, execution, persecution, imprisonment, affirming this one central reality that Jesus, who was born and who lived and who died, remains now, today, alive, following his resurrection. And he is the reigning king of glory. Here's a passage you have to come to terms with if you've not come to terms with these things. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. It is, in effect, an invitation to anyone who would read. Ask them. Ask the 500 who saw him at one time. Ask the apostles. It's an invitation within just a couple of decades or so of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's an invitation. Go do the research yourself. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the confirming validation of his ministry, his life, his death, the efficacy of that death, and of his central place in all of human history. And because he has died and been raised again, his is the voice you can trust. And so there is the necessity of the word. If God does not speak into our world, if God does not speak with power and clarity and force to lift the fog and drive away the darkness, we will remain confused. And my brothers and sisters, I care about the culture out there, and I care about the confusion that there is in the culture, but let me tell you this with absolute straightforward clarity. I care more about the church, and the more deeply distressing thing is that these things are confused in the church. And until the church, meaning us, embrace how precious and valuable is this treasure of the Word of God, which can be trusted at every point because of who spoke it 
and because of who validates its authority through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the beloved Son, until we treasure it and value it, how can we possibly expect for the darkness to be lifted in the world around us? And so there is the necessity of the Word of God, and there is the incarnation of the Word of God. But then, my brothers and sisters, there is this third thing, and that is the insufficiency of the Word of God. And let me be clear about this. Unless the Spirit attends the reading and the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God, it will simply be words. Do we understand that? Doesn't invalidate the truth of the Word doesn't invalidate the authenticity and authority of the word. It simply means this. If the Spirit of God does not come and wed himself to his word as his word is read and preached, there will be no effect. Do we understand that? Do we understand? Do we understand the necessity, the utter necessity of the ministry of the Spirit of God for the Word to be made effectual for all of those things that we confessed earlier in the service. If Word and Spirit do not come together, there will be no effect. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, this is a proof text for the very thing that I'm trying to suggest to you. When I came to you, My brothers and sisters, I did not come to you with lofty words of wisdom. But I came to you in demonstration of the spirit and of power, determining to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified, so that your faith might rest not upon the words of of men, but upon the power of God. I'm going to ask for volunteers. I'm going to ask, I'll give you a key to the building. If anybody wants to show up here on Sunday mornings before this service of worship to do nothing but pray, for the ministry of the Spirit of God in the preaching of the Word among us, I'll give you the key to the building. Because if I come, and you come, and the Spirit does not come, you and I might just as well stay at home. God, have mercy upon us, as I trust He has I trust he will continue to pour out his spirit in some measure, some small measure, as we gather week by week to value, to hear, and to be changed by his eternal and eternally precious word. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus.